This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So it's not surprising that one of the most read stories in the Bloomberg this afternoon is a scoop about Goldman Sachs. Goldman uh, picking a new member of its investment banking chiefdom, shall we say, Dan Dees. We're going to get more on that from Sri Natarajan. He is finance reporter. He broke the story here at Bloomberg. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And Allison Williams, our senior financial research analyst, she watches all the big banks for us. She's joining us from BI headquarters down in Princeton. Great to be with both of you. Uh, Shree, let's start with you. You broke the story. What's happening at Goldman? David Solomon starting to really put his mark, it feels like, on the management team. Right. It's been the summer of change at Goldman Sachs, right? We've, we have a new CEO, David Solomon, taking over in a couple of weeks. They announced a new president last week, John Waldron. So now you have vacancies opening up at different corners of the bank. And as a result, you have Dan Dees as one of the beneficiaries as he becomes the co-head of the investment banking division, which, to be fair, is a fairly important unit and an important engine for Goldman Sachs. Mark Nachman and Greg Lemkow already in those positions. A three-headed monster, not unusual <laughs> here uh, at Goldman, right? Yep, Gold- Goldman absolutely loads the structure of having a single head. Uh, they have three heads in the trading division. They've had three heads in investment banking going going back a while, going back even when David Solomon was the head of investment banking. So that's them sticking to the practice. Fun fact, when David Solomon joined Goldman Sachs from Bear Stearns back in 99-2000, he was supposed to be the sole head of leveraged finance, but then Goldman got cold feet and went back to what they do best, which is find a co-head for him to run the division. <laughs> Everybody needs a buddy, Carol. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Um, you guys broke this story, so kudos uh, to Bloomberg News and to you, Shree. Allison Williams, come on in on this. You follow uh, the big banks for us here at Bloomberg Intelligence. How does this all work within the Goldman culture and what it means maybe uh, from what, you know, what we're going to kind of expect from the company going forward? We know the focus is on investment banking. So the focus uh, is on unbanking, and I think it, it has been for a while. There's a lot of um, talk about the change in leadership. Um, but if you look back under Lloyd, uh, you know they've made a lot of progress in the investment bank, and that's an area that they've already been investor- investing in in terms of hires. Um, you know, they're number one in M&A. They have a, a, a very strong lead there with, you know, revenue multiples of, of sort of the next um, couple of, of leaders. Uh, and they've consistently been, um, you know, top three in equities uh, for a very long time. The debt franchise is something that they've been building up, so they have made progress there. And, and, and ironically, the, the trading side of the business is actually an area um, that they've been doing, um, I guess, less well competitively, if you will, over the last couple of years. And part of that is really just the environment, and part of it is regulation. They've had a much stronger first half, um, again, some of the factors that went against them last year, helping them this year. And I think that really helps to set the stage for Solomon. Uh, you know, he does take the helm October 1st, so it's not surprising that we are seeing uh, the sort of shifts as he's sort of putting in place his team. 
So Shri, tell us a little bit for all the junior bankers out there who want to someday run a big division or co-run a big division of Goldman Sachs. Uh, what was the ladder that Dee's climbed to get to this job? Well, stay close to your boss for one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> more importantly, he, uh, he wow. joined Goldman. <laughs> He, he joined Goldman in 92. Uh, he was actually involved with uh, Goldman's own IPO back in 98-99. Uh, he helped help with that, uh, worked with David Solomon uh, when he was in the capital markets group. Dees was there, had a couple of stints across Asia and Hong Kong and Tokyo, moved to San Francisco in 2014, uh, was actually the head of the TMT group, the tech, media, and telecom group, along with uh, Anthony Nodo when he started off. Of course, ah, Nodo went on go. after that. but. Uh, clearly, he was he was in one of the hottest business areas of investment banking. Right, A everyone likes a tech banker. His clients are Microsoft, uh, Alibaba, Snapchat. Uh, he obviously was involved with the Alibaba IPO, Square's IPO. He was even involved with the whole ill-fated "let's take Tesla" private attempt, uh, ah, however brief that was. There you it, go. Um, pretty cool stuff. And I'm just thinking too, looking forward. A uh, hair, if we may, because what, in about another month or so, we're going to be talking about Goldman Sachs earnings. Allison, I know you sent us over a bunch of research. Uh, what are the kind of things, now that they're, you know, changing folks at the senior levels and adding and all that good stuff, um, what are the kind of metrics you're going to be focusing on, especially with this kind of extra emphasis on IB continuing at the bank? So, so a couple of things. One um, is sort of the trading recovery that I mentioned. Can that be sustained? Uh, you know, it looks like a pretty, um, I would say, modest quarter, so not not a big increase and not big decrease in trading revenue based on the things that we look at and some comments from um, J.P. Morgan and Citi. Um, so for Goldman, it's really just the relative performance across, this, across the equity and fixed income trading businesses that we'll be watching. Um, you know, the debt franchise, which is something that, as I mentioned, they've been building up over the long term. They've actually been outperforming in that area this year, uh, the debt capital markets business, even uh, though, you know, most of the companies are facing uh, tougher comparison and there's been a decline that a lot of peers, they've actually been growing. And again, part of that is just that um, the current environment sort of plays to their strengths in terms of the types of, of deals that are uh, uh, going to be going on. And then, you know, so just more, those yeah. are a couple of specific things more broadly, um, just to, uh, making sure that they're keeping the focus on profitability, comp, right. et cetera. All right. Uh, Allison Williams, our senior financial research analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence following the big banks, joining us from BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey, and Scoop Mas Machine himself, Sri Natarajan. <laughs> He's uh, shaking his head, everybody. Goldman, I'm just going to tell you. Covering Goldman for us here in Bloomberg. I'm just going to make one more comment. Chip it's not kid, really a he doesn't question. like the Scoop Machine, I'm I thinking. Know. No, I love Scoop Machine. What's your other observation? Other observation? Another middle-aged white dude. <laughs> Big job at Goldman. At least he has hair this time around. See, I, I have nothing been... against. I have a very handsome brother who's bald. I have nothing against hair, no hair on a guy's head. I'm just saying. You just bring it back to the balds all the time. I'm trying to uh, make a point I'm about gonna... diversity, and you bring it. You bring it back to the balds. I'm going to bring it back to the markets. Goldman shares, by the way, are up three percent as we speak. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Got me understand. Trying to draw the connection here between uh, Bob Seger and AI. Helping to understand, helping to understand. transparency. I get it. I'm connecting the it. dots for you, Kelly. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much. Well, often we're relying on machines to connect the dots uh, for us, Carol. And we don't always understand what they're doing, which no. makes AI, as I said in the tease, both exciting 
and a little bit scary. So we look to people like Dario Gill to help us figure it out. He's the Chief Operating Officer and VP of AI at IBM Research. All those letters I just put together. Nicely done. He joins us on the phone from Yorktown Heights, New York, uh, up in my neck of the woods. Dario, great to be with you. So this black box, the ubiquitous it feels like black box you're cracking it open how are you doing that well uh one of the things that we have learned with recent advances in ai is that the models that we create have higher predictive accuracy but this black box nature has to do with you know some of the features that are inside those models are opaque for a business user or a regulator to interpret so what we have uh, announced today is the the release of a trust and transparency service on the ibm cloud that allows us to check for bias uh, on the models that are created on the AI models, and also to offer explanations for how those models make those predictions. Dario, this is key, because I think about the implications and potential usage of artificial intelligence when it comes to the medical community. I mean, doctors who are going to maybe use AI have to understand how the conclusions are made using AI. Otherwise, they're not going to trust them. We have to understand kind of all the math and the solution solving that is going on within AI. Yeah, indeed. If, if I were to generalize a bit, uh, we just also uh, you know, released a study of our Institute for Business Value, and we interviewed 5,000 senior executives uh, across a wide variety of industries. And while 82% of them uh, were saying that they wanted to accelerate the use of AI in their business, two-thirds of them were uh, highlighting compliance and this need for explanations as an inhibitor for deploying AI. So you, you rightly point out the medical profession as an example, but it could be in the context of HR and hiring decisions, or it could be in the context also of, let's say, loan approvals. And we have to explain, you know, how they were, uh, the decisions were made. Those are all important uh, contributions as well. Or think about Jason. We've been doing a bunch of stuff uh, in the magazine, uh, Bloomberg Business Week magazine, about self-driving cars and all the data and sensors and so on and so forth. But you know, I'm not quite sure what role AI might have, Dario, in all of this. But you're talking about life and death, you know, decision making here. So it's got to be on target, and people have to trust that information coming out, and it's got to be accurate. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, uh, I, I think that as we want to deploy more and more of these deep learning type models into situations where the decision uh, making has high stakes, right. uh, then it's not just enough to say my model is very accurate. Uh, there are many other considerations that have to do with the trust, the security of the models and the explanations that have to be accompanying the higher accuracy that AI provides. Um, so this is what this reflects. And, and, uh, and I think that Thanks to the recent progress, businesses all over the world have appreciated and accepted the fact that AI is a powerful tool, but for us to really adopt it in a responsible way, uh, we need services like the ones we're launching today of trust and transparency. Well, and transparency is obviously a key when it comes to customers who may be using this on Wall Street as well. Regulators are going to need to peek into those machines when things, uh, especially when things mm -hmm. go sideways. Obviously, mm -hmm. we're not that far away from the financial crisis, and we think back to those times all the time. We also think about how much the quants have overtaken a lot of the hedge fund world and how much money yeah. is being generated at you know speeds that are hard to comprehend, candidly. Dory, what I wonder is, because of the lack of transparency, I was doing some reading, kind of preparing for this segment, uh, how much 
of not really kind of understanding how AI works, how it makes its computations, how it comes to its conclusions, is kind of holding back the adoption of AI, you know, in many industries. And we just got about 40 seconds left. Yeah, uh, indeed, very much so. I mean, that's that's sort of the statistics I was alluding to before, right? In, in interviewing those 5,000 executives, uh, yeah. you know, all over the world, two-thirds of them, two-thirds, said that even though they wanted to advance the deployment of AI, they were inhibited by doing so because, one, 62% of them said because of skills, and the second one was this issue of can I explain it, do I have transparency in how the system works, so I can explain to my clients, my regulators, my compliance inside the company. Yeah, so, so interesting. Uh, Dario Gill, Chief Operating Officer and VP of AI at IBM Research, joining us on the phone from Yorktown Heights, New York. This kind of harkens back to, I think, of the Bloomberg Live event I was at, the value of data, right? There's yeah. so much information coming in, but you kind of have to unleash it, unlock it, filter it through, make it really actionable. And I feel like this is what, this is a big part of it. It's a huge part. And, you know, as I said, I know the Wall Street guys think about yeah. this all the time, but they have to think in terms of compliance and in terms of regulators. <laughs> Yeah, little Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown? Did I just say that? Oh my God! I had to turn, I, I had to turn my off my microphone for a second. I'm sorry. I'm Jackson Brown. I don't know where that came from. Someone right. needs to go out and take a walk. And I've, yeah, maybe I, I, get some steps in, <laughs> and maybe track their fitness, mental and otherwise. So why don't we talk more about that, you, uh, Carol that Masser? Was painful. All right, let's bring in. <laughs> Uh, our folks in our studio, because John Hancock knows a lot about uh, helping people to live healthier lives. Brooks Tingle is back with us, President and CEO of John Hancock Insurance in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Marion Harrison also with us, President and CEO at John Hancock, uh, both, of course, Boston-based. Nice to have you here with us. Nice to have you, Brooks, back with us. Remind everybody about the Vitality Program. You've been doing it, I think, for about three years. We have. We. Uh, it occurred to us a little while ago that it makes a lot of sense for your life insurance company to try to help you live a longer, healthier life. And we started this program, John Hancock Vitality, that uh, gives people points for doing healthy things, and those points accumulate. They earn a status, and those status levels drive discounts on their insurance premium, a range of other rewards. So Marianne, this isn't just about being a good corporate citizen and sort of wanting people to feel healthy. There's some science behind this and some math that relates to lower costs, right? Ultimately, There's, there certainly is. And there is a lot of science that goes in behind this. And as people are looking after themselves, being more physically fit, eating better, they're going to live a longer life as a result of that. And it's sort of a shared value where, you know, consumers are living healthier lives. They're making more of an impact on society at the same time. In the long run, it's an opportunity for us to make sure that we're managing our, our claims appropriate and healthy people is good for us as well. Right, keeping them alive longer, good for them, really good for them, but it also means something for you guys in terms of running the business. Brooks, I'm curious, how many people have signed up? Because I know you guys have an announcement today that maybe makes it uh, more available to everybody out there. We, we have over 25,000 members that had signed up for our optional benefit mm -hmm. over the past couple of years. Why wouldn't somebody sign up for it? Well, great question, and for that reason, uh, <laughs> as of today, we are, we are going to add vitality, these vitality benefits, to every life insurance policy we issue. We simply won't issue life insurance without these vitality benefits. You won't? Correct. Wow. So, Marianne, help us understand sort of the, some of the catalysts here, almost socially. I mean, you, you have a relationship with people that is arguably as intimate as 
any other service provider in a lot of ways. What has triggered it for people, this whole notion that they do want to be healthier? Because this isn't new. You know, I mean, it's not new that you should eat right and exercise. And yet with the rise of a lot of data around this, people do seem to be kind of getting the joke a little bit more. Yeah. What do you think happened? Interestingly enough, a lot of people think that the Vitality product is for healthy people, people that are, you know, very already actively fit. And yet it really isn't. You know, mm. it is a great offering for someone. I'll give you an example that has diabetes. Right. We have a customer who found out they had diabetes and they were trying to figure out how to manage it better. And they signed up for it because they liked someone to help and encourage them to be more physically fit. He has a goal of trying to achieve 5,000 steps per day. And the program actually helps him to do that. And they're gentle nudges that we give as a result of the program that just makes sure that people are living a healthier life. Well, it's interesting. I think back yeah. yesterday uh, in the seat that where Brooks is, we had the CEO of Strava. Right. Um, they've done a pretty phenomenal job. They've signed a job. They've signed up a bunch of people. And part of it is about this sort of the social aspect of this, sort of yes. the, the nudge that comes not even just from the from the provider, but from your peers, right? Well, building on that, I'm also curious, like what kind of, you know, there's tons of wearables. I have an iWatch mm -hmm. on right now. I'm just curious. I'm you know, a Fitbit, you know. He's a Fitbit. Yeah. I mean, we're like all in on this, Jason and I. I mean, where does technology come in to kind of help you in your mission? Technology is a huge part of it because frankly, it makes it easy for people to participate. If we had a program and we said, okay, you need to log on to some website and tell us how many miles you walked this morning or ran, nobody's going to do that, right? right. It's, it's a pain. It's an extra step. With our program, you sync the wearable once, and then if you want to share that information with us to earn these rewards and discounts, it just streams and we assign points based on how much activity. So it makes it incredibly easy. The other thing I would say is the technology now, I, I'm wearing an Apple Watch as well, and yeah. you know the, the behavioral science of it is fascinating. The, the way you feel about your day, if those rings close or not, yeah. is, is amazing. And, and in our program, people can earn basically a free Apple Watch. They, they pay a $25 activation fee. They get monthly physical activity goals. And if they hit those goals, they pay zero. And we hear from customers saying, you know, I have no problem at all paying $19 for a glass of wine at my favorite restaurant. Right. But I'm not paying $6 a month for that thing. I'm going to get it to zero. Right. So the behavioral <laughs> science of it is fascinating. Well, how do you incent people? Is it all about incenting people to take care of themselves better? And I'm curious, how do you penalize people? I mean, you said they've got to sign up for this program if they want insurance. But is it incentives as well as penalties? We, we are all about carrots and no sticks. Okay. Um, people, if they don't participate at all, they're not penalized one bit. It's all about if you choose to the things you can earn, the discounts you can enjoy, the rewards. So for us, it's education, support, incentives, and rewards. So where does it go next, Marianne? What, what's the next sort of level of this? I mean, we just had a segment where we were talking about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. How much of this becomes like a recommendation engine? How personalized uh, does it get? Because I think that's one if not frustration, one shortcoming at times is like, okay, steps, that's fine. You know, tracking my food, that's cool. Um, but how does it get more sophisticated in your well, estimation? I think it continues. Actually, since the program began in 2015, it's gotten more sophisticated. Um, we have a lot more partners that we're working with. As Brooks talked about, we have Apple Watch. We have a number of grocers that we work with to give mm. people discounts, uh, up to 25% on discounts on healthy food and what they buy. So continuing to revamp the program and bring more and more partnerships into it, I think is really important. It's also, you know, beneficial for them as we continue to move forward. You know, when you go through and... Uh, 
get life insurance, it's very painful to undergo through all the underwriting. And now that we've done this, and if you continue to be exercising and physically fit, as circumstances change in your life, we'll be more readily there to give you more life insurance coverage without having to go through all of that underwriting. And one thing that is really beneficial is typically we would only interact with our customers probably two times in a yeah. year, you know, That's privacy notice yeah. and paying the bill. Now right. it's up to 40 times a month in terms of interactions. So the more that we're interacting with them and talking to them, we'll be able to help them with other things in terms of their financial needs as they continue to uh, Well, there's an intimacy change. to this too, right? right? And, a, and an yeah. ongoing relationship. That's so interesting. What about the financial impact? I got to ask you. So as you have more members and you have this, you know, greater interaction, I mean, you do run a business and you want to see certainly an impact on the bottom line. What are you seeing already if you are? If you get to people 40 times a month, that's not bad. Yes, absolutely. The engagement has increased quite substantially. And that really is what it's all about for us right now. It's really around the engagement. Eventually, it should play out in claims, but that'll be many, many years before we see anything like that. Right now, it's really about engaging our customers. Marianne Harrison, President and Chief Executive Officer of John Hancock. Brooks Tingle, back with us, President and Chief Executive Officer of John Hancock Insurance, both based in Boston. They made their way down by planes and trains to our studio here in New York. Good to be with both of you. I love this stuff, Carol. You know that. Well, I think it's interesting, and I feel like more and more businesses are adding a healthcare component, thinking about the impact of that, because it does make a difference on the bottom line. Good for people, but it's just, I feel like it's just invading a lot more industries. And the nudge theory piece of it, too, and sort of the socialization and, you know, peer pressure in a positive way. Sticks okay, too, though. I'm just going to say, Brooks. Sticks okay. (laughs) And maybe later on. This is Bloomberg Radio. Hi, hi, hi. That is an allusion, of course, to marijuana. It's also an allusion to the stock price of Tilray, Carol. From the moment we all wandered into the office this morning, I felt like there was so much traffic going back and forth across the Bloomberg terminal. Joe Weisenthal was talking about this when we uh, caught up with him uh, at the top of the show. Stock is up 14, over 1,400% this year, almost, I think, 1,460. Oh, and up over, it was up over uh, 50% Tilray was today right uh all right let's understand what this all means why it's happening and where we go from here for that we bring in uh, brandon kachkudin sorry brandon he is a reporter for bloomberg news uh often here with us in new york but he's joining us on the phone from princeton so brandon great piece because you introduce a whole different personality into this peter Thiel. how does he play into this uh, yeah, so he was actually part of one of the second fundraising rounds um, back in 2014 with the private equity firm that's um, intimately linked with um, Tilray. And that's a privateer, correct? Exactly. And so who are these guys? Yeah, so I mean, looking into it, um, two of the guys, um, the, C- the, the CEO of Tilray, Brendan Kennedy, um, um, and um, his partners at Privateer, um, two of them were Yale uh, MBAs together, um, Brendan and uh, Michael Blue, I believe. And then um, the other uh, person, Christian Groh and Brendan Kennedy, worked together at Silicon Valley Bank, um, working on venture cap- with uh, venture capital companies. I got to point out just how much interest there is in this story, Carol. The number one most read story in the last eight hours and the number five most read story in the last eight hours are both about Tilray. So what's underneath all this, Brandon? I mean, anytime you see a stock move like this, and we talked to Joe Weisenthal about it too, 
he he was essentially saying there was no specific catalyst that he can see. And can I just say for uh, this specific move, a headline crossing the Bloomberg volatility trading pause in shares of Tilray, which is no surprise, uh, must be because of its limit up. Uh, I think that's what it is. It's halted due to its limit up, limit down trading pause. So uh, that's what's going on in the last trade. Let me just do a quick check here. Check here it was up about forty five percent, but it's up as much as ninety three percent today. Forgive me. Go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of catalyst, I mean, it, it seems like. Animal spirits, if nothing else, um, everyone seems to want in. One thing that's been pointed out um, to us a couple times uh, last week, um, talking with uh, S3 partners who helps us with short interest uh, stories on the terminal, and they're a data provider as well. Um, talked to us just about you know the float and how much is out there to even borrow. And one of the points they made was you know some people automatically want to go to and they want to say this is a short squeeze right that's not the case here because there's just there's not enough shorts i mean there's not there's no shares out there to borrow right now so well um, that's what's really cool like i just checked um the hds function the holdings function of tilray and privateer as you've been talking about this little known private equity fund uh you know backed by peter Thiel, number one holder and they have what 58 million shares so they own the bulk of it so they're really determining in many ways i guess the trade is that right yeah, exactly. Um, well, so so two things. Um, they own 58 million of the shares of the uh, the common two. There's there's different share classes. That's true. They own 76 percent of the one share class, and then 16 million shares, which is everything in the other share class. Um, and they're locked up until January, so none of those shares are moving. Uh, which is sort of, you know, maybe that's what's pressuring the market right now. Is everyone wants a piece, and there's right. just not enough shares to go around. Right. Uh, you know, when we were talking about this earlier as well, Carol and I, uh, Carol rightly pointed out, Brandon, that, I mean, you're our go-to guy on so many things, but one of the, uh, one of the things she name-checked you on was the crypto bubble, uh, that it feels like we're still living, uh, on the other side of maybe, maybe it'll reinflate. Are there comparisons here between crypto and pot? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, one of the things that everyone's starting to point to uh, now that it's all taken off. And um, one of the things, that I'm in our Princeton data office today, and uh, two of my friends down here, Brandon Brell, uh, Bell and Ken Sexton, pointed out to me this comparison between Tilray and some of our favorites from the old blockchain days, uh, you know, in the last eight months. Uh, so Riot Blockchain, it, you know, me and Lily Katz wrote about today, it, it was up 400 percent. And that's what we considered, yeah. you know, craziness after they did the name change. Um, Tilray's jumped right through that. Is there anything interesting in the way Peter Thiel did this? Because he did it, you know, he's got his founders fund, which invested in Privateer, which has a chunk of this class of stock. Was this a way for Thiel to keep it quiet? Or I don't know. Is there anything interesting to that angle? Just quickly. I yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, he they they've confirmed that they invested in it back in 2015, but they they didn't elaborate on how much. Um, I think it was because at the time there was no Tilray offering. Um, they later then did a separate series of fundraising for Tilray specifically. Brandon Koch-Coden, thank you so much. You are, of course, our uh, reporter following all of these things related to big, 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 big money, <laughs> of yeah. which pot is the leading name right now, it's and Tilray specifically. And it looks like, I'm trying to see if the stock has uh, traded, it's still a trading pause in shares of Tilray, so we'll keep tracking that. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car 
I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Time for the drive to the close. David Dietz. Back with us, founder, president at Point View Wealth Management, $340 million in assets under management, with us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. I'm going to make a fairly safe guess, David, that your investments and your ideas don't include shares of Tilray, the uh, Canadian cannabis company, which has been all over the map uh, just in today's session, doubling, uh, selling off a little bit and uh, bouncing back again. Um, I'm just curious, someone who's been in the market for a long time, how do you see things like Bitcoin and these cannabis stocks? Well, it's a great question, Carol. It does seem like some of these cannabis stocks are a little bit 2018 Bitcoin. If you turn the clock back to just under a year ago, we were talking about Bitcoin, of course, all his cousin kindred cryptocurrencies. And, you know, most of those down, most of those are down two thirds. Um, You can't forget that uh, cannabis is, you know, under federal law is still an illegal product here. So that gives you extra risk. Having said that, I think there is a difference that there is obviously a market is something that makes money, unlike cryptocurrencies, which you don't know how many can be made. They don't produce any yield. They're not really a business. Um, So that's kind of in their uh, favor. But for the most part, you've got to stay clear of faddish things of of this nature. So, David, at this point, because of, uh, I don't know, maybe the recent run-up or the, you know, several-year run-up that we've seen in some of these names, pulling back, what's your exposure to that? Yeah, we we are, for the most part, not holders. We would not advocate buying. Nothing wrong with their businesses, but as a general proposition, um, too trendy, uh, too expensive. It reminds me... Uh, you think you know, Amazon it, is trendy? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're trading 176 times current earnings, almost six times sales. So... You, when you've got companies that are, I love to, $1 trillion companies, but I want $1 trillion in sales. I want to pay $1 trillion for them. It reminds me a lot of the Nifty 50 in the 1970s, which were, you know, the one-decision growth stocks. You had to own them. But when the 73-74 downturn occurred, really hit hard. Four horsemen in the late 1990s, the new economy, JDS, EMC, the BRIC stocks. It, ultimately, you can't overpay, Carol. Wow. But what, but, but Hold wait. on. David just did a tour of <laughs> bubbles in like 15 seconds. That was amazing. Bubble history brought to you by David Dietz. Yeah. But David, let me just come back at you. I, I, you know, I'm not making necessarily trying to make the bullish case for Amazon, but if I look at, you know, I pull up the FA screen on the Bloomberg and I look at um, revenue growth quarter over quarter, year over year, you know, we're talking 40%, 42% earnings growth. Finally, you know, we see some profits at this company and we're talking about, you know, 1400% growth in earnings per share. You know, I don't know. Do you call Amazon a growth company because, you know, we're seeing these tremendous numbers quarter after quarter? 
love growth, it comes down to how much you're paying for, how much you can bring down to the bottom line. Just look at China has some great Internet stocks. You know, Alibaba, which is the Chinese Amazon. Those companies are all down by a third since January, which just goes to show you can have great technology, great business model. But once there's the government intervention, once the trade wars start, you can lose a third in seven or eight months. That's where investors need to be cautious. All right, David, 30 seconds left. I got to ask you about Bud because I think it's a name that you like. Uh, why? You know, it's the quintessential monopoly. It owns, um, you know, market-dominating shares across four or five different continents. Um, they have five of the ten leading beer brands, um, huge market shares, which gives them kind of monopoly profits to – this is a company that's yielding 5.4%, almost double the 10-year Treasury. But as opposed to buying a 10-year Treasury, that dividend has increased 14% yeah. per year for the last five years. Who's not going to keep drinking beer? Yeah, interesting. Always like catching up uh, with Carlos Brito, the CEO of ABMF. Mm -hmm. Really interesting guy. Has some good uh, perspectives. Also, always love catching up uh, with David Dietz. Uh, joining us on the phone from Southern New Jersey. He is founder and president, we just of, course, to talk about beer. of Point View Wealth Management. I do. I like Transparency, beer. Jason yeah. Kelly. Chips and beer. Chips and beer. <laughs> yes, chips and beer. Well done. Thank you. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.